please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 85. Psalm chapter 85. And while you find your place, let me ask you a question. Which areas of your life do you wish God would hit the fast forward button? Which areas of your life do you wish God would hit the fast forward button? Where are you stuck? Just a few months ago, I was having a conversation with my seven-year-old son. He'd gotten himself into some trouble and was pretty upset about the consequences that he was facing. And as I was talking to him about his anger, I told him, buddy, you've got to remember to talk back to your anger and, and say no to it. Without missing a beat, he responded, Dad, I'm trying, but my anger just won't listen to me. And it's so loud that I can't talk over it. Immediately, I was pierced, <laughs> pierced to the heart. Oh, I know what that feels like, son. It's not pleasant. My, my son felt stuck. What are those areas for you? Could be anger, could be depression, spiritual dryness, a lack of direction and vision for your life, perhaps a pattern of sin you repeatedly fall into, or, or how about this? How about a season of life or a situation you'd just rather not be in any longer? just seems to drag on. Wouldn't you be so relieved if God hit the fast-forward button on that? Well, the Bible has a word for that. Revival. Revival, to, to give new life. Revival is my, my street definition of revival is when God hits the fast-forward button, and I actually didn't make that up. I got it from Ray Ortland. Let me tell you how he defines revival. He writes, Revival is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Revival is seasonal, he writes, not perennial. God causes it, we do not. It's the normal ministry of the gospel. This is so important. It's the normal ministry of the gospel, not something eccentric or even different from what the church is always charged to do. What sets revival apart is simply that our usual efforts greatly accelerate in their spiritual effects. And he finishes, God hits the fast forward button. Now, I don't know what you think about revival. Or what your experience with it has been. And to be clear, there's plenty of unbiblical, uh, plenty of unbiblical notions of revival. But we're going to set all those aside this morning. And instead, set our hearts on a biblical vision for revival. Which is precisely what the Lord offers us in this psalm. So without further ado, follow along in your Bibles as I read all of Psalm 85. And then I'll pray. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love 
O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his, his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The very words of God. Would you join me in a brief prayer? That he would help us understand them this afternoon. Lord, thank you for these words in Psalm 85. These are not ordinary words. They are your words for your people. You have addressed this psalm to us. And so we receive it from you. Thank you for your word. I pray now that the power of your spirit would be on display as I share and preach and that your spirit would be working in the minds and hearts of these dear brothers and sisters as they hear and receive your word. So help us to understand, treasure, cherish, and apply these words to our hearts and lives this morning. And may in all of it, Jesus Christ and his gospel be magnified. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, this afternoon, I want to persuade you from this passage to pray and prepare for revival. I want to persuade you to pray and prepare for a revival. I, I know you have a long list of things that you're praying for. And I'm asking, a big ask here, I'm asking you to add revival to that list. And then prepare your heart so that when God gives it, you're ready to receive it. Ask him for it. Expect it from him. Psalm 85 has been fine-tuned by God to convince us to pray and prepare for revival. Let me show you this under three points. I'll give you those as we go, you good note-takers. Point number one. Revival is our family history. Revival is our family history. Now, like most psalms, we don't know the exact situation in which this psalm was written. That's by God's design. The psalms were meant to be timeless for God's people. Songs that we could draw from in any season of our lives, personally or corporately. What we do know about this psalm is that it was written in a moment of distress. God's people are feeling God's displeasure. And so, they begin by calling their family history to mind. Look back at verse 1 again. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Past tense language. You were favorable. You restored fortunes which had been lost. And how are they lost? Well, we get a hint in verses 2 and 3. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. Turned from your hot anger. There was a need here for atonement. God's people lost their fortunes by turning their backs on him. Sin had crept into their relationship and spoiled it. 
But what did God do? He forgave them. And in forgiving them, he gave back whatever he had taken away to get their attention back on him. Right, it could have been land or Jerusalem and the temple or a failed crops, maybe a famine. Whatever he took away in discipline to get their attention back on him, he restored by grace. Now, here's, here's the Old Testament in one sentence. The history of Israel is a history of God solving their problems. Even when their problems are problems they caused. You could drop into pretty much any part of the Old Testament and find verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 85 being fulfilled. God disciplining his wayward people and then not long after promising and restoring them. And so that's what the psalmist begins by calling to mind. He calls to mind his family history. He looks into the past for a fresh reminder of what God does in similar situations. And what he's done before is rescue and restore his people. That's the consistent testimony of the Bible. That's the consistent testimony of history. And our faith, our faith requires a firm grasp of history. Okay, Every believer in here needs to be a historian. Okay? I don't know if the, that may not sound very exciting to you, but, but I'm calling you to it. You've got to be a historian. When we get stuck in the present, when we're stuck, we would be wise to pause, look to the past, and ask, what has God done in situations like this before? What has God done in situations like this before? And let me give you a cheat sheet. He's revived his people before. The history of God's people is a history of revival. That isn't just true of Old Testament saints. I mean, what do you find when we crack open the New Testament? We find a Savior who said, I came to bring people from death to abundant life. We find the apostles describing salvation as being dead in our trespasses, but then made alive together with Christ. We find moments like in Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 souls are made alive together with Christ in a moment. God hitting the fast forward button on those people's lives. We find the Apostle Paul instructing us to be regularly filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, to be under the sway of the Spirit of God, which looks like people singing, loving one another, giving thanks to God like you're doing this morning, uh, afternoon. Regular spiritual revival. And outside of our Bibles, if you pick up a church history book, you will find that what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here is true. He wrote, the history of the church is a history of revivals. Why is there a church at all? Because God revives people. Why is your church here? The existence of this local church is proof that God is in the business of reviving people. You want proof? Look around. God is in the business of reviving people. And no matter how much decline you feel personally or corporately, there's always the firm hope that God is going to turn things around. Always. Friends, I know that you're feeling this right now. The loss of meeting spaces, 
the loss of dear brothers and sisters you've said goodbye to over the past couple of years. New time and place on Sundays, trying to say good afternoon instead of good morning, which now I'm wrestling with that too. Thanks for bringing me into that. I know you feel destabilized, but I want to encourage you to look to the past and remember that God is in the business of restoring the fortunes of his people. Over and over and over again, have a good memory of revival in the past so that you don't lose heart in the present. And I do want to give you just one account from church history. I can't help myself. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, 1700s New England. He'd labored faithfully for years with little fruit to show for it. But all of a sudden, God began to revive. Here's how Edwards describes the rapid acceleration of God's work in his town. He writes, this work of God, as it was carried on, and the number of true saints multiplied, soon made a glorious alteration in the town. That's my prayer for you, that you'd make a glorious alteration, and that God would make a glorious alteration in this town through you. So that, he writes, in the spring and summer following, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought to them. Parents rejoicing over their children as newborn and husbands over their wives and wives over their husbands. Our public assemblies, he writes, were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears while the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. God has done that many times before. Our family of churches, right? Sovereign Grace churches, birthed out of a revival. I'm sure there are plenty here who are part of it. You were right down the street from big parts of it here. People came to Christ in droves, in droves, grieved by their sin, running to the Savior, devoting their lives to local churches and global missions, churches established music. The partnership that our two churches enjoy today is the fruit of that revival when God visited his people in an unusual way. And glorious way. Don't forget those times. Don't close the book on those and never open it again. Don't forget the times he's revived you personally. Don't forget your conversion when you first came to Christ, your first experience of revival. Remember those times when salvation was precious to you, when God seemed near to you beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you were eager to read your Bible and gather with God's people and share the gospel. It's okay if you're not in that place right now. But call those past moments to mind. Have a good memory of your own personal history with God. He's restored you before. He'll do it again. Revival is our family history. And I'm going to get to the future in just a moment. One more comment on this before I move on. If you're here, and you're not a Christian. This may not be your family history. You might be wondering, how do I get 
in on this. This could become your family history in a moment. In a moment, before the service is over, this could become your family history. I believe God has you here this afternoon because he wants to breathe new life into your weary heart and join you to his family today. So turn your back on sin, turn your face toward Jesus Christ and embrace him as Savior. And you too will experience revival. He is the key. Point number two. Revival is our present need. So revival is our family history now. Revival is our present need. After an opening reflection on the history of revival, the psalmist in verse 4 brings us into the present. And he makes a request. Verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Now, the psalmist sees his people's present suffering as the result of their sin. It's not always the case. Many people suffer innocently, but that's not what's in view here. He's asking for mercy, asking for mercy. And in calling on God to put away his indignation, he's asking God to not treat them as their sins deserve. As I mentioned earlier, in this psalm, God's people are underneath his discipline. And they see that with crystal clarity. And though we can't trace all of our hardships to personal failures, we can't do that. It's not wise to do that. It's not true to do that. Not all of our hardships are the result of our own failures or sins. The wise and humble Christian looks for the ways that sin is putting a strain on his relationship with God and making life hard. And the reason is because we do have a role in fighting sin in our lives. We can't control the trials that come to us by God's design on account of just living in this fallen world. But we do have influence over the way sin affects our lives. And the primary reason that we're in need of revival is because we give sin too much rope. We backslide. Over time, we do. We get entangled with sin, and it chokes out our spiritual life. One professor and author, Richard Lovelace, who wrote an excellent book on revival entitled The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, listen to what he writes about the relationship between our sin and the need for revival. He writes, Revival is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of decline. Periods of spiritual decline occur in history because the gravity of indwelling sin keeps pulling believers first into formal religion and then into open apostasy. Periods of awakening alternate with these as God graciously breathes new life into his people. We get entangled with sin. It's a much stronger opponent than we thought. We give it an inch. It takes a mile. And inevitably what follows is we feel spiritually dry And distant from God and consequences from our Heavenly Father follow. He disciplines us not so that we have to pay the penalty for our sins. The aim of his discipline is to get us back. He leaves us dissatisfied with the things of earth so that we return to him. And verses 4 through 7 here in Psalm 85 show us that his discipline is working. 
His people are fed up with how miserable their lives have become. So fed up, in fact, that they're finally doing what they should have been doing in the first place. Seeking God. And the accent here lands not on sin, not on their sins, but on the expectation that God will give them relief. Even these rhetorical questions, if you look down to verse 5, are meant to reassure God's people of his forgiveness. This is them preaching to their own souls. Verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? He doesn't even have to write an answer. Of course not. Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No. Knew the answer to these questions. They're speaking to their own souls here. Oh, and we know the answer to these questions too, don't we? In fact, we see the answer to these questions even clearer than these Old Testament saints did. How, how do we know that God won't be angry with us forever? He poured out his righteous anger toward us for our sins upon his son on Calvary. He didn't hold back one drop. Jesus left no drops in the cup for us to drink. He drank the whole cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to taste it at all. That's how we know that God won't be angry with us forever. That's how we know that we will again experience his favor. You can't get hope for revival apart from looking at the cross. If God did that to Jesus for us, as Paul argues in Romans 8, why would you think he isn't going to give you everything else too? He gave you his only son. Think he won't give you these other things you need? Of course he will. A revival comes to people who are fed up with themselves. Who see their sin as their biggest problem. Who are ready. And this would be the kind of countercultural church I think you want to be. I'm a part of a church like this. A group of people who stop blaming everybody else. Oh, wouldn't you like to meet a group of people like that? Stop blaming everyone else and realize they're their own worst enemy. Revival comes to people who are fed up with themselves. It's actually the first clear sign that God is doing a revival. Because he teaches people to be this way. It's a group of people who are saying, Lord, I've done this. This is my fault. I've gotten myself into this mess. Now can you please get me out of it? That's the first sign that a revival is on its way. And I, of course, believe I'm among people who are like that this morning. Even as we sang the songs we sang, we sang a song, Lord, I need you. People that feel that, call upon God for that. It's the beginning of a revival. Only people who are fed up with themselves would ask this question in verse 6, beating heart at the center of Psalm 85. Verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That word revive right there uh, means to make alive, to come to life. Lord, we've been feasting on death. That's what this passage has been saying indulging in sin and it is draining our lives will you please make us alive again and of course here again doesn't even need to write the answer will god do this yes he will absolutely he will these people should expect the request of verse seven the next verse to be realized we're not asking questions anymore show us your steadfast love O lord verse seven 
and grant us your salvation. Give us a taste. Give us a taste of that eternal love that shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Oh, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it at all. But it's what we most deeply need. So give us a taste of that love. Look, you and I, we can't outsin God's love for us. We can't backslide so far down the mountain that God can't reach down and pull us back up. He proved for us that any consequences we face as a result of our sins are temporary consequences. They're all temporary. All the eternal consequences for your sin have already been dealt with. And then through the indestructible life of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, he promises to give us life forevermore. The resurrection is proof that God will revive us again. Now, how will we know when this revival comes? Already, well, people who are fed up with themselves, that's one side of it. There's another side of the coin. It will be accompanied by rejoicing. Verse 6 again, revive us again that we may rejoice in you. People who are being revived by God are both frustrated with themselves and celebrating God at the same time. So revival looks in us like deep repentance. We see that here. It looks like confidence to approach God. We find that here. Confidence to approach God, even in the midst of our unworthiness. It looks like deeper devotion to the Lord. People who are enjoying life with the life giver. I mean, if God is the only source of spiritual life, then revival is drinking in his goodness and grace. That's my greatest need. It's your greatest need. It is everyone you know's greatest need. What do people who are weighed down by sin and guilt and shame need? Revival. What do churches who are struggling to survive need? Revival. What do cities filled with depressed, addicted, angry people need. Revival. I mean, think of the struggling people in your life who you've tried to help. Think of your children. Think of the people in your small group. Think of your family members and friends. Think of your coworkers. I mean, I, I wrestle with this all the time. I get very discouraged when I try to help somebody, and it doesn't take how do you protect yourself from that discouragement when everything I've tried to do to help them hasn't worked? I remember that God can do in a moment for them what I couldn't do for them in a lifetime. God can do in a moment what we can't do in a lifetime. How tragic would it be if we didn't have because we didn't ask. That's why the prayer, revive us again, is an important prayer to have on your list. Revival is a present need, one that God is glad to fulfill. Our job is to ask and ask and ask and then earnestly wait until it's time for him to give. So until then, our prayer is revive us again, O Lord. Revival is our present need. Point number three. Revival is our future state. 
Revival is our future state. In verse 8, the psalmist finishes his request and begins to listen. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. And what does God say? Next line, he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Words of comfort from God will come to his people. The word of God to his people is one of peace. And what he speaks, he brings into existence. The word of God in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, came to speak and secure peace for God's people. The ultimate comfort for sinners. Peace with God. And we have it. Next line. But let them not turn back to folly. (laughs) Sneak that in there. Let them not turn back to folly as God does good to us by reviving us yet again, a a brief but pointed warning not to turn back to those things that got you in this mess in the first place. Let them not turn back to folly. But here, more confidence. Verse 9, surely, ah, hear the confidence in these words, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. And that glory isn't just any glory, that glory is God's glory, his presence among his people. Salvation is for those who fear God. And salvation here is safety from the dangers that can ruin our lives. Salvation is the restoration of our relationship with God himself. And here we need to fear him enough, fear him enough to take our indwelling sin seriously. And fear him enough to renew our fight against indwelling sin. Take up arms once again and fight your sin because God will give you the strength for that fight. Don't turn back to folly. These final verses in Psalm 85 are forward-looking. The psalmist is looking ahead. Looking ahead to an even greater peace and rest between God and his people. Not, Not one marked by spiritual apathy or discipline, or disaster, but a future marked by the very things which characterize God himself. Verses 10 through 13 of this chapter are really the attributes of God experienced and enjoyed. Notice that. Blissful future where verse 10 Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. God is the God of steadfast love and the God of faithfulness. This is a blissful future where righteousness and peace kiss each other. God is the God of righteousness and peace. And these are perfect compliments. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a land of steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace? Those are characteristic of a place where God reigns supreme. Verse 11. Faithfulness springs up from the ground... And righteousness looks down from the sky. Here creation is involved. The ground is earth, the sky is heaven. When God is at peace with his people, all of creation is at peace. Romans 8, again, where creation itself is groaning and awaiting our redemption. Creation is looking forward to this day. Verse 12, confidence again. Yes, the Lord will give. The Lord will revive. 
And our land will yield its increase. Our fortunes will be restored just like they were in the past. Verse 13, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God will have his way in this place again. As you ask God for revival, your confidence that God will bring revival will grow. It's one of the reasons it's important you ask. As you pray, your faith will grow. I mean, Israel here, they're hoping for physical land, agricultural abundance. That's what they're talking about here. But we know that, that the land that God has promised to us is much bigger than a fertile strip of land in the Middle East. The eternal promised land is a new heaven and new earth. A future land where revival is the norm. Life abounds, death is dead. Harmony with God, harmony with creation itself. No more groaning, not from us, not from the world. No more anger or unfaithfulness or unrighteousness or strife. No more divine discipline, no more waywardness. Revival today is a taste of the future. That wonderful world, that promised world breaking into our lives today. And God wants us to expect tastes of that world now for that is what revival is a taste of the promised future the kind of future described in these last few verses of this psalm for us it's no use pining for the past okay i want to be clear about this we should remember the past we should even study the past but we don't need to get stuck wishing we were back in the good old days. I so appreciate John Piper's comments on this. Listen, listen, to what, listen to what Piper writes about looking to the future. He says, the only life I have left to live is future life. The past is not in my hands to offer or alter. It's gone. Not even God will change the past, he writes. All the expectations of God are future expectations. All the possibilities of faith and love are future possibilities. And all the power that touches me with help to live in love is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be, if he leaves me only with the memory of those and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. My hope, he writes, for future goodness and future glory is future grace. We draw inspiration from the past, just like the psalmist did at the beginning of Psalm 85, but we are not, when we ask God for revival, we are not asking him to repeat the past verbatim. God is going to do something unique for us. It won't be out of character, it won't violate his word, we can't force him to do it. The winds of revival blow according to his will. But we do need to set our sails so that we catch that wind when it blows. We can miss it. So set your sail, okay? Pray, prepare, wait expectantly so that when God does it, you'll be ready. You'll be so grateful. You'll be changed. My friends, 
how badly do you want to see God hit the fast forward button? Are you eager for the Holy Spirit to accelerate and intensify the work he's doing in your life and in this church and in the lives of those you love? Would you love to see the gospel ministry of this church surge forward with extraordinary effectiveness here in Pasadena? I want that for you. Are there unbelievers in your life who you'd love to see radically saved and come to find everlasting life in Jesus Christ? If so, then pray and prepare for revival. I'm going to pray for you along those lines right now. Lord, you are the great giver of life. And you have awakened our souls from death into life. I pray first and foremost for those here that have not yet experienced the new life that the Spirit brings. I pray that you would give new life to those souls right now. Change their fortunes change their despair and the hope. Give them the unshakable hope that belongs to those who look to Jesus Christ. Give them that hope today by the power of your spirit. For the weary saints here, the, the brothers and sisters who feel stuck, I pray that they would begin to pray for you to revive them again and that as they pray, their hope would grow. And that you would break into their lives with extraordinary power and grace and revive them again. And I do pray that the ministry of this church in this new season would surge forward with extraordinary effectiveness here in Pasadena. That their normal ministry, their love for one another, their faithful preaching and singing of the gospel would have an outsized effect on this community. For the glory of your name, for the spread of the fame of Jesus Christ, for the joy of sinners. Oh, make that happen through this church. I ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.